Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You are invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. Today's scripture is Matthew 11:16 through 24. To what can I compare this generation? It is like children playing a game in the public square. They complain to their friends, we played wedding songs and you didn't dance. So we played funeral songs and you didn't mourn. For John didn't spend his time eating and drinking and you say he's possessed by a demon. The Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say, he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. But wisdom is shown to be right by its results. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns where he had done so many of his miracles because they hadn't repented of their sins and turned to God. What sorrow awaits you, Chorazin and Bethsaida? For if the miracles I did in you had been done in wicked Tyre and Sidon, their people would have repented of their sins long ago, clothing themselves in burlap and throwing ashes on their heads to show their remorse. I tell you, Tyre and Sidon will be better off on Judgment Day than you. And you, people of Capernaum, will you be honored in heaven? No, you will go down to the place of the dead, for if the miracles I did for you had been done in wicked Sodom, it would still be here today. I tell you, even Sodom will be better off on Judgment Day than you. This is the word of the Lord. I got to see some wonderfully familiar sights in the Holy Land this past week. Places of incredible significance for the three major monotheistic religions of the ancient Near East, which are Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. We got to witness... In ballpark estimation, the location of Christ's birth, the rough location of Christ's death and resurrection, and the room where it's believed, or at least we commemorate, where he shared his last supper with his disciples. These are familiar and known stops along the course of what traveling companies would call a Holy Land classic tour, but there are always surprises too. Things that come up along the way that are not necessarily on the tour. Walking through worship services in progress at some of these holy sites and letting my heart be stirred by the words that maybe I didn't understand because they were in a different language, but I knew that they were praising our Savior. There was a visit to a, a center in Bethlehem which was dedicated to conflict resolution and teaching Palestinian youth and children about nonviolent activism. And then there was the time when our tour group was walking out of the Temple Mount and the ringtone on the Israeli guard's cell phone was the international hit Dance Monkey by Tones and I. That seemed a little out of place until I realized how appropriate it was for this evening's message. Tones and I is the stage name for Australian singer and phenomenon known as Tony Watson. She got her start on YouTube and by busking or street performing on the streets of Melbourne, Australia. The song Dance Monkey is a tribute to her experience as a street performer. And you had to catch someone's attention and keep it fairly quickly in order to be noticed and ultimately in order to be paid. 
There are so many options, and the requirements that would constitute entertainment became so high, and people would either ignore her, or they would become demanding of her. And you could hear that in the lyrics. She sings, so I say, dance for me, dance for me, dance for me, oh, oh. I've never seen anybody do the things you do before. They say, move for me, move for me, move for me, AA, and when you're done, I'll make you do it all again. She was a subject of the whims of a very fickle audience who simply wanted her to do their bidding or wanted her to stop because she was interrupting their day. Did you get a sense that that's a bit of what Jesus faced and experienced every once in a while? From tonight's scripture, isn't there a sense that people wanted the Messiah to basically be their dance monkey? Be this way, not that way. We want this now, not that. We're playing the songs here, Jesus. We just want you to dance to whatever tune it is that we're playing. I get a sense that sometimes we still act like those kids playing songs in the square. We want Jesus to be who we want him to be. But there's a problem with that. And that leads to our first lesson this evening. Jesus doesn't dance to the music of our whims. Jesus doesn't dance the music of our whims. To what can I compare this generation? It's like children playing a game in the square. They complain to their friends, we played wedding songs and you didn't dance, so we played funeral songs and you didn't mourn. Have you ever had a child give you a command? Not make a reasonable request in the form of a question using magic words, but more like an imperative statement with the expectation of an immediate compliance on your part. Give me five dollars. Make me some breakfast. Take me to practice. Some families are fine with that type of no-nonsense instruction. It's economic. That works for some folks. No qualms. For many of us, though, it at least causes us to take a pause. First, there's no attempt at being polite, and what a difference that can make in somebody making a request of you. But the bigger thing is, the child seems to miss out somehow on the differential the power differential between the one who has authority and resource and the one who is requesting it. There isn't a sense of humility and dependence from the one making the request when it's held in contrast with the power and leverage of the person that they're trying to boss around. Even the most generous and benevolent among us still recognize that there's some disparity in the relationship that is worth acknowledging. And this is what the people in places of religious authority never got about their relationship with Jesus. They were so accustomed to calling the shots in their world that when they came face to face with real power, with universal authority, they still thought they could boss him around. These are folks who didn't even have something like DoorDash at their disposal, and yet their sense of entitlement was so great that they honestly couldn't understand why Jesus didn't just jump when they told him who to be. And are we so different? How much of our image of Jesus is based on what his followers tell about him through Scripture, and how much is us just taking what we imagine to be best and hooking it up to an amplifier and assuming that's probably like Jesus? We play our songs of the causes that stress us out and assume Jesus has to be similarly stressed. We sing out the tunes of vices we find to be agreeable and figure that Jesus would probably be cool with them too. <coughs> Excuse me. We grind out tunes of people that we find disagreeable, and of course Jesus probably doesn't like those folks either. How could he? Won't you dance to our tune, Jesus? Why aren't you dancing? And that leads to our second lesson. We're wise to let Christ inform our image 
of who he is. We're wise to let Christ inform our image of who he is. Jesus goes on, John didn't spend his time eating and drinking, and you say he's possessed by a demon. The Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and other sinners, but wisdom is shown to be right by its results. Crowds are fickle. Crowds are notoriously fickle. David Ayers is a 42-year-old Zamboni driver. Actually, he's a rink operations guy for Coca-Cola Coliseum in Toronto. And he's been a practice goalie for the Maple Leafs. But on February 22nd, he was the emergency goalie drafted by the Carolina Hurricane hockey team. This man made waves as the oldest ever emergency goalie to snag a win in a debut game by coming from way, way off the bench to come into play in a professional hockey game. The team and crowd ate it up. But it wasn't long before some folks were saying that this was a fluke and it's bad for hockey and it shouldn't and can't happen with any kind of regularity. It would just be a mess. It's bad for morale. It's bad for players. Granted, most of the people who caught Ayers' highlights thought it was a fun turn of events and recognized that it was rare. It was a great story for a little guy who got a shot at his dream. It was like a Rudy type of story. That still doesn't stop the naysayers from saying their nays. Jesus did so much good for the marginalized and forgotten people to feel seen and known, valued and loved. But what his critics saw were the perceived faults. Just as they jealously pointed out the perceived faults in Jesus' cousin and ministry predecessor, they never stopped to discover why Jesus was being embraced with such joy. Why he was being recognized as a special embodiment of God in the midst of God's people. Why lives were being changed through his ministry. They didn't want to know him. They just wanted to control him. And they got it backwards. Had many of them taken the time to understand Jesus, like the religious leader Nicodemus sought to do in John chapter 3, they would have been moved to humility. They would have seen what God was doing in their midst, and instead they saw an obstacle to their agenda. And their ministry was not one that led to abundant, true, and eternal life. It led to ongoing captivity, and though their practices had all the outward appearances of religion, they ultimately lacked the life-giving power that Jesus could share. And that leads to our third lesson. To know Jesus is to know life and hope. Jesus began to denounce the towns where he had done so many of the miracles because they hadn't repented of their sins and turned to God. What sorrow awaits you, Chorazin and Bethsaida? For if the miracles I did in you had been done in wicked Tyre and Sidon, their people would have repented of their sins long ago, clothing themselves in burlap and throwing ashes on their heads to show their remorse. <coughs> Excuse me. I tell you, Tyre and Sidon will be better off on Judgment Day than you. And you people of Capernaum, will you be honored in heaven? No, you'll go down as a place of the dead. For if the miracles I did for you had been done in wicked Sodom, it would still be here today. I tell you, even Sodom will be better off on Judgment Day than you. I was reminded during my very recent visit to Capernaum, which was just last Monday, that's fun to say, that once Capernaum was demolished by the Roman soldiers as they were on their way to snuff out a revolution that was brewing in Jerusalem around 69 and 70 AD, that city was never again rebuilt. Never again. In so many communities of antiquity, if it had been conquered and destroyed, a new community is built from and over the ruins. But for that whole time, 
Capernaum was never rebuilt as a city, just as Jesus said. Jesus did amazing things there. He cleansed a man under the control of an evil spirit. He healed a paralyzed person who was lowered down on a mat by his friends into the roof of a synagogue. He restored Peter's mother-in-law when she was ill. He caused a fish to be pulled from the water of Capernaum's shore to produce a coin to pay the temple tax. And even with all those miraculous signs, the people of that community did not evidence trust in who Jesus is. And they missed out on an invitation to life. It's a great place for religious pilgrims to visit now and to recall the miracles of Jesus. The only hope it has to offer, however, is the hope that we'll learn from what they missed. They missed who Jesus is. Let's not miss it. We're going to go focus throughout Lent on the I am statements of Jesus. I want us to hear the words and terms Jesus uses to describe himself and his significance for us. And our Lenten journey towards Easter starts today. And it starts with ashes. Ash is a sign of repentance. It's a reminder of our mortality. It reminds us that our lives here are temporary. But through Christ, there is an eternity that awaits us. In the book by Rob Fuquay that inspires the series we're going to spend time with over the next few weeks, he talks about one more thing that the ashes represent. That's the refining work of God. This life in Christ is meant to transform us, and this season of Lent is a great time to be able to be formed in our faith. Scripture makes several references to a refiner's fire, and maybe that's through a time of denial or trial or devotion that causes people of faith to be purified. We enter in, and through the heat of God's refining, we are purified as those things that are not like Christ fall away like ash or melt away like dross. These ashes represent what will be refined away from us as we're purified in this life and as we're purified in the life to come. During the season of Lent, as we learn more about who Jesus claims to be, part of our calling as disciples is to become more like him. Let these ashes be marks for us of the beginning of a season of refinement in our lives. And by the Holy Spirit's power, may God purify our lives so that we are dancing to the music of Christ's heart. Would you join me in praying a word of thanksgiving over these ashes? Let's pray together. Almighty God, you have created us out of the dust of the earth. Grant that these ashes may be for us a sign of mortality and penitence, so that we may remember that only by your gracious gift are we given everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. In a moment, you'll be invited to come forward, and if you'd like, you can receive a sign of the cross on your forehead through the ash. These ashes, I'll remind you, are not fresh ashes, and so nobody will be singed or burnt or anything by fresh hot embers. This is a, a safe and cool ash, but it's, it's not safe because it threatens the things that stand against God. If we take this act of repentance seriously, then those things are threatened by this act of repentance. And so we come forward to be renewed, to start this journey towards the cross and towards the empty grave uh, by humbling ourselves before the Lord. As you come forward and receive the mark of the cross, you hear the words, 
Remember you are from dust, and to dust you will return. Repent and believe the gospel. These are words for all of us to be shaped and formed in the likeness of Christ. Now, at God's invitation, come, turn to God, and receive.